Sports and Alpha by Benji Mellers is available on Amazon. Order your copy of Sanborn's Boys today. So we were planning on doing a show tomorrow, but as of a couple days ago, we scored tickets to the Montreal Canadiens skills competition, which will be taking place tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. So uh, we are recording today instead. We've got three games to recap, including uh, Jake Evans' debut against the Ducks a couple nights ago. They got uh, two wins, both of them uh, beyond regulation, and one regulation loss to the Columbus Blue Jackets. So should they win tonight against the Toronto Maple Leafs, then they will have kept up a 750 points percentage since the eight-game losing streak, which, uh, yeah, dream is still alive. Yeah, the dream lives. Uh, I mean, I, I think I think you are you're, you're, you're getting more and more, you know, uh, Maybe excited as this little hot stretch continues. Uh, me personally, I look at the, the the wins, the quality of the opponents, and uh, yeah, I, I take a step back and think maybe you know, well, we'll wait and see. And, and this Leafs game tonight uh, will be very important for the Habs playoff hopes, not just as a litmus test, but also you know the Leafs are ahead of us in the standings, and uh, we're probably they're probably going to be the next team we're going to have to leapfrog uh, if we're going to make any sort of run toward the playoffs. Uh huh. Yeah. So, uh, if you want to, to walk through each of the the games this week, I honestly I remember a little bit about the Blue Jackets game on Sunday afternoon. Um, I believe they were down three to one, and kind of they made a late push uh, near the end of the game. They scored one, maybe with the goalie pulled to make it three two. Then the Blue Jackets scored an empty netter, but Montreal came back with another goal to make it four three. So those kind of uh losses where the empty net goal turns out to be the game winner can be quite frustrating. Yeah, it just seemed that, uh, you know, it, it seems like it, it's, a, it's a playoff team in Columbus right now. They're a wildcard team. And so it was very, it was, it was extremely frustrating in terms of just like watching the game. Uh, and they, they, they just kind of started off flat. Uh, they were down through one, as you said, and it just looked like Columbus had full control of the game for most of the time. Uh, and while they made that late push, you know, we saw the comeback coming, maybe uh, late goal by Domi. Uh, it ju- you know, it just seemed like a, li- a li- too little too late. And uh, I don't know, it was just kind of a flat effort uh, overall. Uh, Columbus outplayed them. And uh, they honestly, they, they, they lost to a goalie who was playing really well until the end of the game in Elvis. Uh, and we'll talk about yeah. Elvis later in the podcast. Uh, but it just seems like they fell victim to a to a better team that night. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah. So you mentioned. I don't know. I, I just thought of this. I wonder how long because I've said I mentioned to you before uh, with uh, like one of the big marking points, I guess, of a superstar player is when you can make reference to them as just their first name and everyone knows who you're talking about, like Sydney or Connor or you know players players of that caliber. People are already doing that with Elvis. I know it is just because his name is very, very unique, and there's obviously the reference to a much more famous Elvis. But I wonder if uh, if he's already maybe in that sort of uh, superstar level tier. Well, he's certainly been playing like a superstar recently, uh, especially yeah. since he is a rookie. And uh, yeah, as you mentioned, that name certainly doesn't doesn't uh, you know 
prevent him from. It certainly helps. Uh, are you kidding me? That's a fantastic name, uh, Elvis the Latvian. Uh, I don't think I've ever heard of that combo, uh, but I'm certainly a fan of that name. Um, and so moving on, I don't. Yeah, I don't think I have anything else to say about this Blue Jackets game. It was just, it was rather upsetting. Yeah, there's much more to say about the game against the Devils on uh, on Tuesday night. Carey Price uh, did not play. He was sick. And uh, P.K. Subban on the Devils also didn't play. He was sick. Uh, so it was actually it was the battle of two right-catching goalies, Charlie Lindgren and Louis Domingue, which I don't remember ever seeing uh, two right-catching goalies play against each other. And it was uh, quite entertaining, especially, especially in the overtime. You could tell neither goalie was especially comfortable in this situation because, well, you know, they're not stars. They're backups. At best, they're backup goalies. Yeah, the, the, the right catching thing certainly caught me off guard. Like, we made a first save, and I was like, wait a second. This guy I didn't even notice that Ligrin was a right catching goalie uh, until now. Probably, you know, goes to, goes to speak to how much they play their backup. But, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, well, if we're looking at right catching goalies, neither of those goalies played particularly well. Um, so maybe that's an indictment on right catching goalies. Uh, but going into the game, uh, the the Habs started. They they were absolutely dominated uh, by the New Jersey Devils. They were losing three uh, nothing. But uh, lo and behold, after seeing many a multi goal lead slip away themselves, uh, the Habs managed to claw their way back uh, uh, against you know a pretty crappy New Jersey Devils team. But still, nonetheless, a three nothing comeback is a three nothing comeback. And so uh, yeah, they 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 ended up actually taking a four three lead. They scored four straight goals. Uh, and then and then the Devils tied it up with about with under 30 seconds left, if I recall correctly. Uh, and yeah. then they went to overtime. Uh, pretty pretty crazy overtime there. Uh, and the, you know, we'll we'll get into that. And and then uh, and then the highlight of the night, uh, you know, the shootout. Uh, and uh, so in front of his old team uh, on a night where he was getting booed uh, for the entire game, Ilya Kovalchuk uh, scores on the shootout, the winning goal and proceeds to celebrate by shushing the crowd. And so what were your takes mm-hmm. on this game? Uh, not to take anything away from the Montreal Canadiens and their their comeback, but I have no idea how many times the Devils have blown multi-goal leads. I remember in the first game of their season, first or second game, they had a 3 nothing, maybe a 4 nothing lead against the Winnipeg Jets, or 4-1, some sort of big lead, and they blew it and lost that game. Um, so that, that was kind of a, a precursor of things to come for the Devils this season. I, can, I can't remember specific instances, but I've definitely heard on several occasions of Devils blowing 2-0, 3-0, big multi-goal leads. So this was, I assume, nothing new for them. Um, in terms of the, the Canadians, yeah, Ilya Kovalchuk, man, uh, getting booed. And players get booed a lot. You know, uh, star players get booed wherever they go. But it's been a while since I've heard as loud as there was in New Jersey for Ilya Kovalchuk. Uh, because you forget, it's not just like, oh, we're, we're booing our former star player who isn't on the team anymore. He chose to leave. He was, he was in the prime of his career, maybe at the, at the very end of it. I think he would have been about 30 years old when he left to go to KHL. They were just two years removed from a run to the Stanley Cup Finals. And they and Ilya Kovalchuk was the best player on their team. So that was a big surprise in whatever summer that was. I think it was might have been 2013. So he was 29 or 30 years old. So they have reason because he kind of just abandoned them out of nowhere. So you can kind of understand where those that loud booing is coming from. But of course, to be on the other side of it, 
and see him score in the shootout, game-winning goal, give them the shush. Oh, it was great. Everyone was loving it. Yeah, uh, it, was, it was honestly, it was, it, was, it was kind of funny to me, you know, like you could really feel the hate in that, that arena. Uh, whenever he touched the puck that night, they just really don't like him. And as you mentioned, they probably have good reason to, uh, given the way he left them. Uh, and so, yeah, that, that New Jersey game, uh, it go like at the start of the game when they were down three nothing. It really looked like you know, uh, the, it was gonna, just going to be one of those games uh, that we saw. You know, we've seen many of these where they just play down to their competition and not just play down but play worse uh, when it comes to bad teams like New Jersey. And New Jersey's been awful this year. You're talking about you know blowing multi goal leads, but not just you know, and that's when they get leads at all, which hasn't been frequently. Uh, so it's just yeah, it was. Uh, honestly, I was prepared to call the season right there. Uh, down 3 nothing to the New Jersey Devils. Uh, I was like, uh, this is it. Uh, now the tank is 100% on. Uh, a- any thoughts like that on your end? Uh, if they had lost the game, I probably would have been right in the same boat with you. But I wasn't, uh, I wasn't counting them out in that game just because of how frequently the Devils have blown leads. And I was, uh, I was proven right for, for not giving up quite yet. And good thing they didn't either because, you know, the, uh, the 750, 750, that's the number I keep saying, it's still alive. So, yeah, season is uh, it's not over yet because they came back against the Devils. Yeah. Uh, so, so do you think, how big of an impact this kind of comeback, how do you, how do you think it, it impacts the team? Do you think it's just another, because it is a 3 nothing comeback, even if it is against a team that's been prone to these kind of things. Uh, do you think this this gives, we've seen confidence problems all throughout the year with the the Canadians, uh, and do you think, you know, this maybe presents a turning point, uh, especially with, you know, guys like Jure, uh, I know he's pretty close to coming back and all these other injuries, uh, you know, they're, they're starting to, these guys starting to get healthy. Uh, do you think, you know, maybe that game was a, was a turning point? Well, it surely uh, doesn't hurt to have a big, big comeback, you know, team building and whatnot. But it's not as though that was like the way they ended some sort of losing streak. So I don't, I don't think that really has to be a turning point. They didn't really need one because they, they had been winning leading into that game for the most part. They are, I think, 8-3 and three in their last 11 now since the big losing streak. So, so they've kind of, they had been trending upward. And this is kind of, you know, uh, another, another game, another win in, that, uh, in the whole big lung system. So yeah, okay. They, uh, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, go for it. Oh yeah, that's kind of it. That's what I was. That's all what right, I'm right. saying on that. So uh, talking about talking about another win, uh, we'll move on to the yeah. next game, uh, which happened a couple nights ago, uh, where the Habs beat the Anaheim Ducks in overtime. And so, you want to talk about a bit about that game and uh, you know somebody who made their NHL debut? Yeah, Jake Evans. Uh, I have been. He was so impressive in the preseason. I remember. I I was hoping he would make the team out of camp. A lot of people were. Uh, he did not. Uh, but he has definitely earned. This opportunity, he's been pretty hot with the Rocket as of late. 23 years old, seventh round pick of, I want to say, 2015, sometime around there, 2014 maybe. Seventh round pick right near the end of the draft. And uh, it's not very often you see those seventh rounders get the chance to play in the NHL. So good for Jake Evans. And he almost scored a goal about four or five seconds into his first shift. He had a breakaway. Uh, couldn't convert, got stopped by by John Gibson, but a very good game. I think he played about 11 minutes. Uh, his family was there in the crowd, and uh, they got the win. So I, I hope that he sticks around a little bit longer with this team, see if he can you know, get some chemistry with anyone maybe. 
I think actually for tonight, he's listed on a line with Max Domi and Ilya Kovalchuk. So that's definitely uh, quite the nice opportunity for him. Uh, hopefully, maybe he can start you know, producing some points and perhaps stick around for, for next season. Yeah, uh, we see more and more. You know, just Jake Evans is another example. I know he he got called. Uh, anyways, uh, never mind. And so, uh, yeah, we just see more and more of these kind of th- these young players. We'll we'll see more and more as uh, you know these prospects. You know, Alec Caulfield uh, and uh, Alex Romanov. But he's just another example of a young guy coming up and performing well. And speaking of that kind of guy, uh, my MVP for that game was we've talked about him a lot this season. But uh, fellow rookie Nick Suzuki, and uh, he scored a goal. Mm. The, the Habs first, and I thought he looked absolutely – he's looked great recently, but that game in particular, I thought uh, he was an absolute stud. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say – I was thinking during the game, actually, that thanks for reminding me. That was, I think, Nick Suzuki's best game of the year. Every time he was on the ice, it felt like he was creating scoring chances. He was in control of the play. They pointed out on the, the broadcast, uh, he, like, stick-lifted one of the Ducks defensemen and got a great scoring chance out of nowhere and hit the post. You might not remember what a what play I'm talking about. He just he does that kind of thing all the time, and he's only going to get better. He's only 20 years old. So honestly, I think this this player has uh, maybe maybe even top line center potential. I don't know if that's my bias showing. It probably is, but he's already playing on the as a second line center, and he's been having a pretty fantastic rookie year. So. The Canadians definitely have someone, someone really special here, who's going to be getting better and better in the next couple of years. Yeah, he's been absolutely bonkers this year. Uh, I, bonkers. I think he, I think he merits some Calder talk, Calder talk uh, at the end of the year if he keeps it up like this. I don't think his, I think Makar and Hughes uh, have locked up the top two spots, but I think he definitely deserves some conversation for that number three spot, and that's that's because that's how well he's been playing uh, throughout the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you mentioned, absolute playmaker. Uh, and when he's just so dangerous when he's on the ice. Uh, and when you say first-line potential, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, he's just a rookie, and he's thriving in that second-center second, second center role. And so, yeah, and, and just, you know, just a little, a little projection into the future when Caulfield comes into the league. Can you imagine uh, Nick Suzuki setting up goals for Cole, Cole Caulfield and, and his absolutely wicked shot? Uh, and, and that's the yes, kind of thing I that can. really gets me excited in terms of, of, of the Habs' future. And so, you know, that... and. When was the last time we saw this kind of this kind of rookie performance on the Habs? Uh, I personally can't think of anybody uh, uh, who showed up on the Habs uh, and in their rookie year, you know, garnered any sort of color talk. Uh, and uh, so, uh, just- Brendan Gallagher was a finalist. Brendan Gallagher in his rookie year, he I think he came very close to winning it. Actually, he got beat out by Jonathan Huberto in the lockout shortened 2012-13 year, but that was uh, that's the last one that I can think of. Yeah, exactly. So it's been a it's been quite a long time, seven years, uh, and yep. so yeah, this team's been pretty starved for like you know like a superstar youth, uh, and uh, I think Nick Suzuki is is slowly approaching that superstar status relative to the team uh, with his absolutely fantastic play, uh, mm-hmm. and so uh, another shout out. Uh, we talked about last week potentially you know maybe trading this guy, uh, and you know I put his name out there. And uh, given uh, fellow defenseman Shea Weber's injury, he's out for at least a week. I, I, I couldn't, I don't think I could have been more wrong given how you, you called it, how integral he is to this team. Jeff Petrie, uh, let alone his, his absolutely minutes-eating night. I think he played something like 27 minutes uh, in regulation against Anaheim. 
Uh, so he's really carrying the load with, with Shea Weber out. He also, you know, scored that overtime goal. And so, uh, yeah, we talked last week about potential Habs can- trade candidates. Uh, well, this kind of performance, I think he's just off the board completely. Yeah, uh, I would be very sad if they traded someone like Jeff Pastry or Thomas Tatar, no matter how good the return is. Uh, not because, well, obviously, a good trade is always possible with, with a, a great return for, for any player, but because of how, how attached I've gotten to them. And I feel like a lot of, uh, like we can look at other fan bases around the NHL who say things like, I don't know if you remember when the Blues traded Ryan Reeves to the Penguins. I just thought of this, this example. Uh, basically, the unanimous uh, response was, wow, the Blues basically fleeced the Penguins. They got a first-round pick and Oscar Sundquist for Ryan Reeves and a second rounder. Wow, uh, they made out like uh, like bandits, but most Blues fans were, were pretty upset because they had grown so attached to Ryan Reeves over the years and they loved him. And that's uh, part of the thing with being a fan is you get emotionally invested in these people as players and also as individuals. If you get to know them in the in you know in the community, they have a form relationships with fans. <clears throat> so I kind of see maybe obviously on a higher level because they're better players, a similar thing going on with Petrie and Tatar, because obviously they're very good. But if you look at it from an outsider's point of view, Jeff Petrie is like, uh, you know, the second best defenseman on the team. He's like, you know, he plays on the second pair most of the time. And like almost every team has a defenseman who's around the caliber of Jeff Petrie. It's not like he's, you know, a superstar. So it's not like a trade is out of the realm of possibility or that he's untouchable. I hope it doesn't happen. I don't think it's going to happen. But I mean, but I mean, it's not like Jeff Petrie is an irreplaceable kind of player. It's the same kind of thing that that maybe happened with uh, with like you know, we've had lots of players that have been traded of high caliber recently: Pacioretty, Galchenyuk, PK Subban, and for the most part, they've all been replaced pretty adequately, uh, at least for now. So it's. So it wouldn't be some sort of tragedy if they could if they did end up trading Jeff Petrie and got some sort of great return. That's kind of my. I, I hope I kind of made that sound sort of coherent because I'm kind of just babbling on and on. But uh, I've kind of come around to the fact that it's not like it would be some sort of great tragedy if they did end up trading him. Well, I would call it a great tragedy, but I think this team. It, I think it would be a mistake. Uh, for for any sort of average return, I think if you're trading Jeff Petrie, you need to get your socks blown off because this guy. I mean, you talk about you know every team has their own Jeff Petrie, but he's he this kind of player. The Habs need him uh, when it comes to this year uh, and the next because of his contributions to the team. Uh, I, I'm not saying he's any kind of superstar, but this guy I talked about you know eating minutes uh, and when you know Shea Weber is injured, uh, he's just he becomes the number one defenseman. And so I think it would be, unless we're talking about like absolutely incredible return here, I don't think it's worth, you know, trading Jeff Petrie, especially since he's obviously got that extra year on the contract next year. Uh, And when you mention, you know, previous trades of supposedly important players, uh, I mean, Alex Galchenyuk, I don't think he was nearly as integral as Jeff Petrie at any point during his tenure with the Habs. Uh, You know, uh, Max Pacioretty, yeah, he was a first-line winger, but he was a winger. And it's I don't think – I think the defensemen uh, are, are just that much more valuable than Max Pacioretty – well, not just Max Pacioretty, but just wingers in general. And so I really think that, 
yeah, sure, we there. You know, he, he's not one of a kind, Jeff Petrie. But I think the Habs do need this kind of player on the roster. And you know, if you do trade away Jeff Petrie, who are you going to replace him with? You know what I mean? Like, I, if if you're trading him away as a sort of rental to a contender, uh, even though he does have that extra year, I, I don't think you're kind. I don't think you're getting anywhere that kind of starting roster defenseman. Uh, I don't think you're getting that kind of caliber back. And so, you know, where do you think you get that kind of, where do you think you get that replacement guy? Because if we trade Jeff Petrie, sure, there's a lot of other Jeff Petrie caliber out there, but who's our, who's going to be our second pair defenseman? Yeah, I, well, I suppose I haven't really, you know, thought it through that, that much, but I, I sort of foresee that, that fantasy world where if they do trade Jeff Petrie, that the replacement would possibly come as part of the return, kind of like we what we saw with the Pacioretty trade, where they got back Thomas Tatar, who's kind of filled in Pacioretty's spot as the top line left winger. Now, at at the time of the trade, he wasn't seen as well, as good as Pacioretty. I don't think. I, but yeah, I I think I think Vegas saw him as a captain because they needed that cap space. Uh, at that point, Tatar wasn't he getting scratched at some points in the game? Uh, yeah, well, he he wasn't playing all the time with Vegas, but now we we look at it now, and the most people were saying at the time. That was kind of just a random 20-game stretch of his career where he didn't fit in the Golden Knights and he wasn't playing well. The Canadians acquired him with the vision of playing him as a top-six winger, and yeah, now he's producing at a similar rate to Max Pacioretty. So that's kind of probably an unlikely thing to, to repeat itself with Jeff Petrie. Again, I want to repeat, I don't think they're going to trade Jeff Petrie. I don't want them to, but... But uh, I guess I could just leave it at that. I could just say I don't think they will, and I don't want them to. And uh, we can we can kind of wrap it up like that because I don't see anything like that happening. All right, sure. Uh, and so we'll move sure. on uh, off another potential trade target onto another one. Uh, and so uh, you pointed it out. You sent me an interesting article uh, written by Eric Engels, I believe, from Sportsnet, uh, and yeah. it basically detailed uh, potential interests uh, from other teams uh, into the Habs of sellers, and in particular. Uh, one name we've talked about a lot, uh, and it's Ilya Kovalchuk. And we've talked about him earlier in the podcast, in fact. And so uh, in the article, he does list a number of teams that have inquired. Uh, and so they are the Bruins, the Flames, and the Oilers. And uh, he also writes that the Bruins in particular have taken taken a liking and taken a, particular, a strong interest in acquiring Kovalchuk for their stretch run. And so, yeah, what do you think of these rumors? Yeah, well, uh, I did mention the Bruins last week as one of the uh, the teams that, for the last couple of years, actually, have had five excellent top six players and kind of a, a gaping hole on second line right wing that's been filled in by players like Carson Kuhlman, Anders Bjork, Danton Heinen. They acquired Rick Nash a couple of years ago to fill it in on the second line with uh, David Krejci and Jake DeBrusque. And uh, obviously Rick Nash uh, retired at the end of that season. Or not right at the end, but anyway, he didn't come back to the Bruins. And yes, I think Kovalchuk, as uh, proven with Montreal, he's the kind of player that needs to play top six minutes to be effective. And the Bruins are a great team, first in the Atlantic Division, Stanley Cup contender, that can also give Kovalchuk a chance to play those those big offensive minutes. And a lot of other um, playoff teams wouldn't be able to to give him that sort of opportunity. So. I think the Bruins would be a great fit. I think the uh, Oilers and Flames too. Obviously, he'd fit in nicely. He'd fit in nicely almost anywhere. Um, I don't know if Kovalchuk uh, would play so well with Connor McDavid. I don't know if that fit works out because you know McDavid 
relies obviously on speed as his main thing. I think he might fit in really nicely with with Leon Dreisaitl, a more a more you know brute force kind of kind of forward. Uh, in terms of the possible return, last week I said second round pick was the asking price, and uh, second round pick we should be very happy about. But now that I, I've thought about it a little more, second round pick. Uh, I think that's kind of that. That would probably be the absolute minimum for me to be satisfied. I wouldn't mind getting uh getting another pick too. Kovalchuk's really been that good, and I think he could be that valuable for a team moving forward into the playoffs. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just Kovalchuk is so valuable in so many different facets of the game, and I think that's what. And we've seen this more and more. The more games he plays, uh, and we're talking about, you know, first of all, in the locker room, we we've seen, I've seen lots of, you know, comments about how this guy's, you know, he brings, he brought a new energy when the when Bergevin signed him, uh, and I think you see that he he has that energy w- w- on the ice too. Uh, for example, you know, when he scores the shootout winner against the Devils, uh, he's not, he's got that kind of celebration, that kind of personality where he shouts to the crowd, and I think, you know, he's definitely brought that energy. To, you know, to the other players, especially coming off that that eight game eight game losing streak, uh, and he, if I remember correctly, he helped them pull them out of that streak. Uh, and like one of his first games, he they they, they finally broke that streak. Uh, and so it's just and talking about uh, also caps cap wise, uh, this guy has a league minimum contract, and for the production he's given, you know, we're talking about top six. He looks like he belongs on the top six of of really any team right now at this point. And mm-hmm. for many of these contenders, they're very cap strapped up against the cap. Uh, a guy like Kovalchuk for what seven hundred grand? Uh, that I mean, that's absolutely perfect. And so, yeah, we're talking about return here. Uh, I absolutely agree. I think second round pick is the floor uh, because honestly, at this point, I, I don't see any, I don't see any downsides in terms of trading for Kovalchuk. He's cheap. He produces. Uh, he looks like he's enthusiastic. He wants to win. And so, and he's got personality. He's got that energy. And so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, just this, the signing looks better each with each passing day. Uh, and I honestly, I can't believe Bergevin got in such a steal because, you know, we're talking about midseason and league minimum. Uh, he's made such an impact just with the Habs uh, in the few games that he's played. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, but. Yesterday, amidst the biggest snowstorm we've had in Montreal this winter, Ilya Kovalchuk posted on his Instagram. Uh, he was playing uh, some hockey on an outdoor rink with his kids, and he's been po- apparently. I don't. I don't follow him, but apparently he's been posting like English and French captions ever since he's come to Montreal. So he's really taken to the community, and a lot of people have really fallen in love with him. So, uh, if the Canadians can keep up this good pace. I don't know if it's the if it's if a trade is definitely going to happen, because Mark Bergevin has kept saying we'll see how we'll see how uh, the next couple weeks play out. He said that leading into the All Star break, I think he said that again recently. We'll see how how it plays out leading into the trade deadline. So if they do manage to keep up this pace, I don't know if Mark Bergevin is so eager to to trade Kovalchuk because of how he's as you said played such a key role in kind of. Uh, taking them out of that that losing streak, that slump, and he continues to play a very important role in terms of producing offense and bringing a new life to the team. So, and some people are even saying they should try to get an extension done. Which, if they can't manage to trade him and they do extend him for a year instead, 
that kind of is a little bit of, you know, it, it makes a, makes you feel better about not trading him because there isn't a risk of him walking at the end of the season. So uh, a trade is not a foregone conclusion. I would say neither is an extension, neither is, you know, nothing happening. So, yeah, I guess that's uh, – we'll, we'll see what happens with, with that in the coming weeks. Yeah, I think the next stretch of games uh, is going to be absolutely crucial. You you keep saying, you know, that 750 pace, but I think it's – if they can keep it up, I think uh, the Habs, if they can make up some ground in the standings, uh, I think Bergevin has to think about keeping this guy because – uh, if they do get close to the playoffs and then you trade them away, you're, you're, Bergevin will always be left with that, you know, what if we kept him? And so, yeah, starting with this Toronto game tonight, I think uh, the Habs haven't cemented themselves as sellers. I think they're taking calls, but I don't think, you know, they've decided. Uh, and I think we see that with Bergevin's, you know, kind of, he's, he's, on, the, he's on the edge there. Uh, and so these games right here, because the Habs have been hot. They have been at that 750 pace. And so if the Habs can keep it up, I think, uh, Bergeron probably stands pat at the deadline. And so I think this season will be defined by the next week, two weeks before the trade deadline. I think Bergeron will want to wait as long as he can before making these trades because I think he believes that this is a playoff run. And I, and I actually, we saw it come out uh, that the Habs organization as a whole believed that their season this year was derailed uh, mainly because of the injury uh, injuries. And I think that's maybe a bit flawed. Uh, of a thinking, I think we saw the team during those I, those eight game you know losing streaks plural. I think we saw some legitimate flaws that were not solely uh, because of the injuries. Uh, but I think with the mm-hmm. players that are getting healthy, with Juwan coming back, uh, and you know this team starting to get healthy, I think this will be you know this will define the season. The next few games will be a testament to how good this team really is, and are they a playoff team? Uh, and so I think Bergevin will wait as long as he can before the deadline to finally make his decision. Is this team, uh, you know, going to make a run for the playoffs? Are we going to keep Kovalchuk or are, are we selling everything off? Yeah. Uh, I, even if they do keep up this great pace leading into the trade deadline, I wouldn't mind them still, you know, trading the likes of Nate Thompson on an expiring deal, Dale Weiss, maybe if there's any sort of interest for him on uh, retained salary. Eric Engel speculated in that article that the Jets might be interested because they're only one point out of the playoffs and they have a pretty weak fourth line right now. So Dale Weiss might be an option for them. Uh, it's kind of like it's not you're not throwing in the towel just for trading expiring deals. You remember a couple of years ago, the Blues were in a playoff spot and they traded Kevin Shattenkirk to the Capitals at the deadline and they still ended up making the playoffs. So it's, you're, you're, it's not giving up just trading off those those players. So I think that no matter what happens in the next couple of weeks, trading Thompson and Weiss is probably the, the right course of action. If you can, uh, well, you'll definitely be able to get a fair enough return for Nate Thompson. And if there's any sort of interest in Dale Weiss, then you should try to, uh, to get something back for him as well. Yeah, I agree. When it comes to, I think most years, unless you're really a cup contender, uh, when it comes to, you know, peripheral players, uh, like your fourth liners, like your Dale Weiss and your Nate Thompson, when they're on an expiring contract, when they've been outplaying their contract, especially as Thompson has, uh, I think it's probably the right move uh, to sell them off. Uh, and I think that goes for most years uh, because, you know, w- these players, uh, they when it comes to the trade deadline, these, they can get, you know, some, some solid returns. 
Uh, and so I agree. These peripheral players, uh, I, I definitely do think that we should we should be selling them because I don't see the Habs making a Stanley Cup run uh, anytime this year. They might, you know, make a playoff run, but uh, I don't think the Habs are any sort of contender uh, in anybody's imagination, even Bergevin's. And so, yeah, I, I think I think the fourth liners. But, but when it comes to you know guys with uh, you know an extra year, your Thomas Tatars and your you know your big names like Kovalchuk. Uh, I think I think it's probably best to to wait uh, and to see you know uh, are we do we have any sort of shot? Mm-hmm. So um, unless you've got anything else to say about these uh, speculative trades, the Canadians, we could move on to the trade that actually did happen this week. Yeah, sure. All right. So uh, you know the first de- first trade of this little you know this this pre deadline bonanza, we have uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs trading. Uh, for Jack Campbell from the LA Kings, uh, as well as Kyle Clifford, uh, in exchange for one third round pick, uh, Trevor Rosen, and Trevor Moore. Trevor Moore. Wow. Okay. Trevor Moore. Who's Trevor Rosen? I I mixed up Kelly Rosen in my mind. Anyways, um, I don't, I don't <laughs> know. I getting his name. I I kept thinking it was Tyler Moore, and then it was and then it was Trevor Rosen. I I don't know what I'm thinking. Anyways, Trevor uh, Moore. Trevor Moore uh, and a conditional third. So it is, and the condition is that you know either Campbell wins a bunch, uh, a number of games, he gets resigned, the Leafs make the playoffs. There are a couple conditions, but it could get bumped up to a second, and so it is a third at minimum. And so, yeah, the the Leafs address their first and foremost they address their backup problem. Uh, we saw Freddie Anderson; he's out with probably a concussion. They said it's a neck injury, and so he's out for for a bit. He's day to day, and we see Michael Hutchison. Uh, he he really crapped the bed the other night, uh, and so you know I think it was during the game where they actually made the trade, uh, and so yeah they 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 tried to he, Jack Campbell actually played his first game with the Leafs last night. Uh, they 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 almost blew it to the Ducks. Uh, they they mm-hmm. blew a three one lead. Uh, they ended up winning in overtime five four, and so yeah the the Leafs hit their backup situation. Uh, they also get you know a, a sort of grit grinder. Uh, a veteran with you know some playoff experience and Kyle Clifford, uh, and they give up uh, a bunch of picks and a quality player in not Trevor Rosen but Trevor Moore. So uh, my first reaction to this trade was that uh, it was quite a lot for the Maple Leafs to be giving up to address the backup goalie situation, uh, but they were certainly not working from a, a position of any sort of leverage or strength, especially after the Frederick Anderson injury. And they they really had to do something because if Michael Hutchinson was the starter for any sort of extended period of time, then I would say the Leafs' playoff hope were uh, pretty much all but over. So considering the circumstances, Kyle Dubas certainly did not do too badly. And Jack Campbell really doesn't have very much NHL experience. He is 28, but he had been twirling in the minors for most of his career. And uh, But he kind of broke out last year with the LA Kings. At a very good save percentage on the very bad team. Uh, this year, numbers don't look quite so good. I think he was about 900 with the Kings. But that could have been a product of just playing on a team that's e- even worse than last year's LA Kings, if I'm not mistaken. So I think Jack Campbell is a good backup goalie. He's going to have to be carrying the load until Frederick Anderson's back. Uh, I didn't watch the Leafs game last night, but he got the win, even though he gave up four goals. And uh, in terms of, of Kyle Clifford, uh, he is another one of uh, Kyle Dubas's, you know, Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds, who he used to 
uh, who he used to work for. And it's not the first time he's uh, showed some favoritism to to uh, former Sioux Greyhounds, but it's worked out every time in the, he's done it in the past. So uh, Rasmus Sandin, an example of that, seems to have been quite a nice draft pick near the end of the first round. So, And uh, I do think Kyle Clifford is perhaps a little bit of a downgrade on Trevor Moore. But uh, Trevor Moore barely played for the Leafs this year because of an injury. So in that sense, I guess you could say it's kind of an upgrade to having nothing, even though it, it isn't really. For the for the draft picks, I think is the there's the third rounder. And there's also uh, the conditions on the, the other third rounder are either if Kyle Clifford re-signs because he's a pending UFA, or if Jack Campbell wins six games and the Leafs make the playoffs. If either one of those conditions happens then the pick gets bumped up to a second so i guess you could say the uh leafs are would be hoping it gets bumped up to a second because that means jack campbell did well and the leafs made the playoffs so all in all i think it's a pretty good trade for both teams um the la kings got uh, a good winger who can probably play in the top nine now and trevor moore and some some decent draft picks for uh just you know a pending ufa and a backup goalie so not bad for either team, I would say. Yeah, I looked at this trade and I thought immediately, you know, both teams came out uh, with a win. Uh, however, I do believe that the Kings probably came out the bigger winner, uh, given that, you know, we're talking about a backup goalie here uh, on an expiring contract. The Kings are, are have been in to- toiling in the basement all year. And so, you know, he wasn't going to be much use to them. Uh, and to get this much value out of it, we're talking about two picks, uh, both uh, in the top three rounds and then... Uh, a, you know, a top nine forward, a quality forward in Trevor Moore. Uh, I think they come out as victors. And when it comes to the Leafs, uh, they really needed to address that backup problem. It's been the narrative around this team all year, uh, whether it's Gaskisuo or Michael Hutchison. They've both been uh, pretty bad. I know Hutchison's been all right recently, but still not not the level that you want for a playoff team. And especially now that Freddie's injured with that neck injury, I think they really, really needed to address that problem, and they did. And I think, you know, it wasn't a gross overpayment, and I think that's a victory for them because we're look- if we look at probably the other big name on the back goaltender market, it was, you know, Alexander Gergiev, and they were asking for, I think it was Kapanen or, or something else. That, was, that, that would have been a gross overpayment. And I think, you know, coming out of this with, you know, I think we have to, to – I think J- Jack Campbell is kind of a – He's kind of a question mark because, as you said, he hasn't played much over the course of the NHL, his NHL career, uh, and he hasn't, you know, his he was great last year, but this year he's been all right, that 900 save percentage. But as you mentioned, you really have to wonder, you know, how much of that is him and how much of that is the fact that the Kings straight up don't play defense. Uh, and if we look at the other goalie on that team, Jonathan Quick, uh, who has regressed, he's, he's playing with like an eight-something save percentage. And so... You know, Jack Campbell has been the best goalie on that team, save percentage-wise. Uh, and so, yeah, I think both teams come out uh, for the better on the other side. But I think given the return for, you know, what is really, in essence, a question mark in Jack Campbell, I think the Kings came out uh, probably on top if we're, if we're really comparing the two. Another interesting thing to point out with this trade, Jack Campbell this year is actually making under league minimum. He's making 675000 against the cap because uh, I, I guess that deal was signed before a league minimum was at 700000 And he had previously signed an extension with the Kings that pays him $1.65 million for each of the next two seasons. So he's signed through 2021-22. So 
the Maple Leafs appear to have a little bit of stability in the backup situation, and it's really not not too expensive if Jack Campbell can play like he did last season or close to to that high level of play. Yeah, we'll just have to see how he performs, and, and I think he'll get uh, a decent shot with Freddie that's, that, that he's out. And if the Leafs, uh, if we're talking about the Leafs real quick, they uh, have lost a bunch. They are not in a playoff spot right now, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I think they're tied in points uh, but uh, with that win. But it's, it's not looking great, and they needed this uh, because they did blow a lead against the Rangers uh, before the Ducks game. And so, you know, we're talking... Yes, Sheldon Keefe has had a great impact on this team after they fired Babcock. But I think, you know, maybe those those lapses uh, where they, they tend to blow leads, I think that's still there. And I think making the playoffs at this point, I don't think anybody saw this coming. But I think they really need to bear down and grind it out if they even want to make the playoffs. Yeah, Austin Matthews has been one of the hottest players in the NHL, though. He's got 40 goals now already on pace for 60. He's tied with... Alex Ovechkin. If we can get two players hitting 60 goals this season, which looks like I think that could definitely happen. No one's hit 60 since Steven Stamkos 2011-12, which I think I've mentioned before. So, uh, yeah, Austin Matthews has definitely found a new gear under Sheldon Keefe where he's been uh, neck and neck with Ovechkin in terms of goal scoring. The Leafs are definitely a team to keep an eye on. Uh, I'll be cheering against them, and we'll get into the playoff race uh, near the end of the podcast. All right, so the next, uh, probably the next biggest piece of news uh, from the NHL this week was uh, a storyline that we've been tracking throughout the season, and it's the story of Dustin Bufflin. Uh, and so we talked about him last week. Uh, we wondered where it came out. You know, he probably wasn't going to come back this season. And so it came out that uh, the Jets and Bufflin are working together on a mutual termination of the contract. Uh, and so, yeah, th- I mean, this guy. We we heard all sorts of rumors about, you know, ankle injury and all that. And so, yeah, this is the final development probably in this story uh, where he's finally leaving the Jets. Yeah, so uh, I think this um, this probably opens the door for the Jets to make a push to acquire a defenseman. Maybe I'd mentioned Josh Manson last week, but it doesn't look like the Ducks want to move him. Perhaps a, a Rasmus Ristolainen type who they've been interested in in the past or a rental from the, like, Sammy Vatnin from the Devils. Because we've been looking at the the Jets' defense all year, especially at the beginning of the season, when they had even more injuries, and saying it looks totally, completely depleted. But uh, they've been just barely staying afloat. And now that Dustin Bufflin is actually not going to be a part of this team at all anymore definitively, it's not really like, oh, wow, the Jets' defense isn't any good now for the time being. That's actually what... What the corpse looks like. Josh Morrissey's the best one, and he's surrounded by the likes of Neil Pionk, Dmitry Kulikov, Nathan Beaulieu, Sammy Niku. So it doesn't inspire much confidence. And for a team that was supposed to be continuing an upward trending, especially with Connor Hellebuck playing as well as he is this year, you really see how important Dustin Bufflin has been to to the team the past couple of years, and how hard it is going to be to replace your best defenseman. Yeah. Uh, this defense core has been uh, the primary weakness. We talked about the Led Jets last week, but then, and we talked about how this defense core uh, has been the root of, you know, the fact that despite Hellebuck's excellent play, Vezina caliber, uh, they've been middling in, in the playoff spot, uh, and they've been on the bubble all season. And so it's 
We yeah, and Bufflin he really was important to the. He did it all. He was so physical. He, he brought the physical element, uh, and you know, offensively he contributed a ton. Uh, and so yeah, looking at replacements for the Jets, uh, I think you have to chase somebody uh, to really replace Bufflin. In that it's not a rental, and you have to get somebody with term. Uh, and so you know, looking at you know, we thought if if anybody was to trade for Jeff Petra, I think probably the Jets. Uh, you know, you could probably throw their name in there if the Has were to ever trade him because, uh, you know, Bufflin was a minutes eater, so was Petrie. Uh, and so, you know, a potential thing, but obviously uh, I don't think either of us think that Petrie's actually going to trade him, but, you know, potential destination because the Jets, I mean, look, they, this team, it seems every year, they're, the last couple of years, uh, they've been, you know, trying to go for that cup. And it's just, yeah, it, it's, it's a pretty big hit. It's, it's a huge hit. Uh, because, yeah, really that defense has been pretty awful. Uh, and if they don't make the playoffs, I think, you know, you really have to maybe say that B- Buffalo not being there this season uh, because it kind of ha- handcuffed, handcuffed them against the cap as well. I think that's probably the primary cause uh, of this season's failures. Yeah. Uh, one interesting thing to, to keep an eye on is whether Justin Bufflin's going to sign somewhere else for the end of the season, possibly on a league minimum deal, similar to what Ilya Kovalchuk did. Uh, I would not advise uh, for for doing that because I don't think Dustin Bufflin will be anywhere near uh, his usual caliber of play considering how much time it's been since he's played hockey at all. Kovalchuk had, had been, what, two months maybe that he hadn't played? And people were still very impressed that he he was so good. Dust with Dustin Bufflin, it's been since late last April, so almost ten months since he's played uh, any sort of NHL hockey. So maybe a team would take a flyer on him, see if maybe in, in sheltered minutes he could be effective. But uh, he, I don't see him being you know a twenty-five minute kind of defenseman for a team with playoff aspirations. Possibly next season. When he gets a full training camp in, he could be close to what he was, his former self, but he is 34 years old, a heavy kind of a physical kind of player that don't tend to to age as well. So that'll be uh, interesting to see. I don't know if you have any teams in mind that might want to look at Dustin Bufflin for a playoff push. I don't I don't really uh, possibly the uh, I don't know, the Oilers come to mind. I don't know, maybe Dustin Bufflin want to get out of Canada. Maybe that's why he didn't want to stay on with the Jets in the first place. I'm not really sure. Yeah, I I don't have any teams of mind because I don't think that he will come back at all because, you know, we don't know how healthy he is and healthy he is. Uh, we saw how much that injury took a toll on him. He couldn't get healthy, right? That was the thing that, you know, that that was the, the, the main cause of this 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 rift between him and the Jets between him and the Jets. And so, yeah, I don't know how healthy he is. We're talking about, yes, this guy, he plays a physical game and that wears on the body year after year. Uh, and we saw that went just the fact that he, he sat, he's been out this whole season. And so I would personally be absolutely shocked if he came back for any team, uh, any sort of minutes, because he has taken this long off. And it wasn't just like, you know, it, it was physical in nature that's why he took this time off because he was hurting he was injured he could and he couldn't get it he couldn't get his body right and I think you know coming back uh off of this long of a stretch probably wouldn't be the best idea for him 
either, let alone, you know, any sort of interest from teams uh, for a guy, you know, who has been out all year. And so, yeah, I, I personally would be shocked uh, if we saw Dustin Bufflin on the ice this season. Yeah, so do you think he's going to retire or do you think there's still a chance he could maybe rehab over the summer and come back with another team uh, in training camp in September? I, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't, I don't want to speculate too much, uh, but I, I, I wouldn't be surprised either way. Uh, I think, you know, with a full offseason to prepare, I think if he wants to, I think it's 100% up to him. Uh, he's made a ton of money, so I don't think that's a problem. Uh, so if he wants to, if he feels, you know, like he, if he feels the desire, the energy, then I think there will be teams looking for him for, for the new season. And I think he'll get plenty of suitors if he declares interest, uh, especially if he takes, you know, like a lower cap hit. Uh, who wouldn't want that? But yeah, given the way the season has gone, uh, it seems that he's kind of lost his passion for the game. Well, that's what came out when... When it was, you know, when they said that he had been suffering from this this long term injury, I certainly wouldn't be surprised if this is the last we've seen a buff. And uh, yeah, quite the career from this oh, guy. Oh yeah, uh huh. Yeah, Stanley Cup champion with the Blackhawks in 2010, and there was the uh, the famous uh, the the brawl he had against the Predators in the playoffs a couple of years ago, where he kind of just walked in and used his brute force to grab two Nashville Predators and accidentally also a linesman out of the brawl. It was, it was pretty crazy. I don't know if you know what, what, uh, what scene I'm talking about, but uh, it's been, been gifted quite recently in light of the, the recent Bufflin news. Yeah, yeah. I actually just saw that, 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 that gif on Twitter, funny enough. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, quite the icon. He's been there. Basically, he's been a steady name for basically as long as I've been following hockey. Uh, you know, funny to think he used to be a winger. Uh, I have NHL 2K10 on my Wii at home. And uh, when I play for the Blackhawks, he actually shows up as the right winger. And so, uh, you know, just uh, if this is the end of Buff, it's been one heck of a career. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll just have to see if he, if he, if he shows up on any team's radars. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, so moving on to a piece of news that we mentioned a little bit last week. The Arizona Coyotes were being uh, investigated for uh, doing physical testing on draft eligible players before the draft combine and just this morning a uh, a new development came out in that story uh Darren Dreger reports they are believed to have committed at least 20 recruiting violations by fitness testing draft eligible players which is quite a lot and something I didn't realize about the uh we we had said last week the fine was going to be up to $250,000 some people think that that might mean $250,000 per violation. So if there are 20 players that they uh, that they tested, it could be possibly a $5 million fine, which seems quite excessive for me because I don't feel like, like the penalty should multiply depending on how many players. Well, maybe it should. I don't know. Just like $5 million seems like a, a very extreme penalty for something like this. Even though it is quite clearly against the rules, uh, I, I didn't realize the fine would multiply like that. I'm not even sure if it does, but that's how some people are interpreting it. Yeah, uh, according to Dreger, actually, uh, Darren Dreger, each violation, uh, each one can carry, you know, 250 grand or even more possibly. And so, yeah, we're talking about uh, a pretty hefty financial, uh, you know, a financial 
penalty. And, uh, you know, for a team like, you know, the Arizona Coyotes, who have had their fair share of money problems, uh, that that's probably going to sting. Uh, I don't think I don't think it's excessive uh, when we're talking about, you know, 20 violations. And I was listening to 31 Thoughts, the podcast with Elliot Friedman and Jeff Merrick the other day. And they talked about how, you know, if they don't make it, if they don't make this penalty stiff, uh, you know, the, the GMs were looking to exploit it. Uh, in particular, you know, uh, Elliot told the story of like, you know, Lou Lamorello. Uh, he was he was looking to, you know, trying to exploit the system uh, when he asked, you know, when they were discussing this rule, they're like, how much is the fine? And so I think this fine is meant to have teeth. And personally, I'm OK with it because uh I mean, they broke the rules, and uh, yeah, I think the financial penalty is appropriate. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's just very, very so surprising because you would never really think about uh, about teams trying to circumvent maliciously like that because it feels like something that would have have so so little consequence. You know, it's not like cheating in game or anything like that. You know, which I don't even know how you would do that in hockey. Maybe there's no way, but yeah, it's just a very strange situation. And uh, you would think, compared to the uh, the whole uh, Houston Astros scandal of uh, of a few weeks ago, this does seem seem pretty tame in in comparison. And not not that not that the Coyotes are in the right in any way or anything like that. Just kind of a nice uh, duality between the two sports and perhaps their level of excitement and drama to uh, to a mass populace. Yeah. So uh, the NHL's big scandal this year is that. They tested a bunch of seventeen-year-olds too yeah, early. A couple months too uh, early, and uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. It, def- it definitely it definitely pales in comparison. But uh, you know, Elliot was saying, you know, the, this is the, before this rule was implemented. It was a real problem. This testing before the combine, it it, it kind of screwed with the CHL, and that's why they they advocated for that rule. And so, personally, I I don't have any problem with this uh, this fine. Uh, if it's so much, because look, what's the alternative, you know, a little slap on the wrist and it keeps happening. And then, and so, you know, I think, uh, this kind of punishment, it's not that de- like, it's not devastating. Uh, it's just, it, it actually stings. And I don't, I, I, I certainly don't have a problem with punishments that actually sting. Uh, we've talked about player safety this year in terms of suspensions. And I certainly would prefer, you know, an actual suspension that's stung compared to the, the one game. Or, or no suspension at all, which is in most cases uh, where it's, you know, it's a small fine. It's really just a slap on the wrist, if, if, if anything. Uh, and so, yeah, in regards to NHLs and penalties as a whole, big picture, uh, I certainly don't have a problem with, you know, fines that actually hurt. You know what I wonder about is if the players involved in this, and we don't know which players were involved, if they knew that they were, they were taking part in something that wasn't allowed, if the Coyotes made it, made it clear to them, or if they found out that, what they were doing is against the rules, and if they did, if there would be any sort of punishment for them, I don't know, because if the Coyotes said, hey, we want to come, you know, I don't know where they did this, physical testing in advance, and the players agreed to do it, knowing that it was against the rules, how does that advantage them, except for maybe, you know, getting a couple brownie points with a, a team that could potentially draft them in June? Uh, so I kind of want to learn about that from their well, point of view as well. I, I don't think it's quite fair to blame the players in this case because first they're very young, uh, 17 years old. And we're talking about, you know, the, the draft here where it's probably going to define their careers. And so, you know, we're talking about a power imbalance here. If, if you're an NHL prospect 
and you're trying to fight for, you know, draft position, you're trying to get draft as high as possible, and a team comes knocking, an NHL team comes and asks you, you know, you want to you get tested? Do you mind? Uh, I, don't, I don't think uh, many people would have the guts uh, to say no because, you know, you really don't want, when it comes to the draft, you really don't want to piss off any of the teams. You don't want to set any unnecessary narratives, any negative narratives for yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I don't think it's quite fair to, you know, question the players' motives. I think it's res- it, the teams are responsible for their own conduct and how they evaluate Yeah, more than players. that, I just I wonder if they, they knew that what that they were taking part in something that wasn't allowed, uh, which I guess they potentially could have just found out by their, themselves. I don't see why the Coyotes would have told them that unless, well, actually, well, I don't know, maybe the Coyotes would have had to tell them to, to try to keep it on the down low. So I guess it's quite possible that they did know exactly what was going on. So it's a very interesting. Thing. I'm not saying they, they deserve any sort of fine or punishment or anything, but it'd just be be interesting to see what what that was like from from their point of view, whoever the players happen to be. Yeah, I think I think the more details that we get from this case, the more interesting it is. And uh, yeah, sure, for sure. I, I mean, anything the players' perspective. You know, I want to know if you know if the Coyotes actually knew that this was an infraction. You know, was this unintentional? Uh, will they say it's unintentional? Will they just apologize? Well, it's it's it all remains to be seen, and uh, hopefully we'll we'll get as much transparency as we can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think I think that wraps it up for this little scandal talk, uh, and, and we can move on to some more positive accomplishments uh, from a couple individual players. And so you mentioned earlier how uh, you know Austin Matthews was hit to hit potentially. You know he was on that sixty goal pace potentially, uh, and maybe we'll have two uh, sixty goal scores. Let's talk about the other one real quick. And so Alex Ovechkin. Now we've talked about this guy week after week. You know he's been his his. Just crazy amount of goals, and he just keeps going. We we can't not talk about him uh, because his accomplishments, week after week, game after game, they're just absolutely preposterous. I mean, he got another hat trick uh, just this week, and so you know, at this pace, uh, you gotta want, you gotta think that you know, it's just a matter of how long are you gonna play, Alex, uh, before you know you you catch up to uh, Gretzky's goal record. Yeah, I think, uh, well, he's quite obviously going to hit 800 goals. Uh, I think that he's got a very good shot at 902. And you know what? A thousand goals isn't really out of the realm of possibility either. Because look at it. So he's, I think he's at 698 now in his career, according to the page I'm on. Not sure if it's all the way up to date. But let's say he could get to 720 by the end of the season which I think would give him about 62 goals on the year, which is uh, more or less the pace he's on. If he finishes this year at 720, how many uh, years in a row would he have to hit 50 to hit 1,000 goals? It would be uh, six years. Uh, and, I mean, that might be a lot to ask to hit 50 goals until he's like 39 years old. But if he, if that pace slows down a little bit and he ends up playing until he's like 42 or 43, but scoring maybe about thirty goals by the end of that uh, of the end of his career, then uh, yeah, I think a thousand goals being the first ever player to to do that is within the realm of possibility for Alex Ovechkin. And the fact that he's doing it in this era too, where scoring is much lower than it was during you know the era that Gretzky played in and the other uh, goal scorers, and and with how Gordy Howe played for so long, also 
who's, who's at second on the list with 801. Uh, it's pretty amazing what Ovechkin's done, and you really you really can't uh, can't overstate how how amazing Ovechkin is at scoring goals. Most people at this point have come around to the fact that he is the greatest at all time, greatest of all time at at scoring goals. Yeah, and in terms of keeping this pace up, uh, we're talking about a guy for scoring his goals. You know, he just kind of sets up in his office uh, above that faceoff circle and just snipes it on those one timers. And so I don't think. While his his pace might slow down a bit over the course of the years uh, as he gets older, I don't. I think this kind of play where 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 he's, his goal scoring, I think it's pretty sustainable, uh, given that it's not reliant on you know speed. Uh, and so I think I think this has really has the potential to last. I think it's a matter of how long does this guy play uh, because he he he's really got to figure it out. He's really got to mm-hmm. figure it out. And frankly, I don't think uh, in this era. Uh, or maybe even any era, I think we're probably witnessing, uh, you know, the greatest goal scorer we'll ever see in our entire lives as hockey fans. Because, you know, we're talking about a guy who's approaching a thousand goals and, you know, just, he's just, he's just on such another level. I mean, maybe we'll see a guy hit this kind of number, but maybe, and that's a, that's a huge maybe, but even at that point, that means the game has changed a lot and, and where, Goal scoring is back to, you know, whatever, the 80s levels. Uh, and, and just the fact that he's done it basically just, well, not basically, he's done the, the whole thing through through a dead puck era where the goals haven't come easy for anybody. It's just, it's just absolutely ridiculous. Uh, we're talking about Gretzky. He scored his goals. He scored his goals in an era where goal scoring was just through the roof. Uh, and just the fact that Ovechkin even has a claim at some sort of challenge uh, is, is truly remarkable. I don't think anybody can understate how good Ovechkin is scoring a goals, uh, greatest of all time. That's 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 probably uh, all you can say uh, when it comes to his goal scoring prowess. Uh-huh. Uh huh. One of the other things that I want to point out that makes him uh, so so deadly, especially on the power play, because you pointed out how he scores a massive chunk of his goals from the same spot on the ice, and even though everybody knows exactly what's coming, they can almost never seem to stop it. And I think he owes a uh, very big chunk of that to his teammates, Nicholas Backstrom, who's been playing with him for his entire career, or basically the whole thing. And more recently, John Carlson and Evgeny Kuznetsov are so good at drawing attention away from Ovechkin because, you know, those are three superstars as well. Especially John Carlson has, uh, you know, the tremendous numbers he's put up this season. They are, they are, They can be deadly too, so they need to have attention on them because if the other team focuses too much on Ovechkin, then, uh, well, those three players won't have too much trouble finding the back of the net either. So, uh, yeah, Ovechkin definitely um, benefits from playing with such great talent around him, as any player would. So uh, so uh, if you have anything else to, uh, to point out about Alex Ovechkin, maybe we could uh, move on to our uh, standings recap for this week. Uh, yeah, sure. Actually, I want to shout out another player. Uh, before we get All to right. the standings, uh, All right. yes. I think I think I, we mentioned him. We mentioned him earlier, but uh, I just want to, you know, just his stats have been insane, uh, and it is indeed the Latvian goalie Elvis Merzlikins. And so, yeah, he's just been absolutely preposterous, ridiculous. Uh, just just this stat alone: his last eight games, he has five shutouts, uh, and that's just stupid. Okay, and uh, you know, most goalies. <laughs> They don't get five shutouts in a season, and this guy's done it in eight games as a rookie. 
Uh, and yeah, not much else to say. I just wanted to say that stat because he's really single-handedly, honestly, carrying this Columbus team. Uh, they, they're in a firmly in a wildcard spot at this point because he's just been unsolvable. Uh-huh. Uh, another interesting thing to point out is that since Jonas Corbisello has been injured uh, and Merzlikens has taken over the crease in Columbus, their backup goalie has actually been another Latvian uh, named Matisse Kavlinieks, I think is his name. And uh, I don't think there's ever been another instance of a, a Latvian goalie duo in the, the NHL. So that's something to point out. As well, uh, Dmitry Filipovic pointed out, you said five shutouts in the past two games for Merzlikens. Um, Sergei Bobrovsky, Freddie Anderson, John Gibson, Jordan Binnington, Jacob Markstrom, Robin Leonard, and Braden Holtby have five shutouts combined this season. So that puts into a little bit of perspective of... of uh, how great Merzlikens has been as of late. Yeah, that's preposterous. You're just listing a name of, uh, listing a list of probably the best goalies in the league. Uh, and just, and they've, they've had all season to play. Uh, meanwhile, this guy shows up, plays eight games and has five shutouts. And so just, yeah. And regards with regards to the Latvian thing, it just seems that the only sort of player that I ever heard about from Latvia uh, are goalies. Uh, and I, and like we, it just seems that, you know, when I think it was, I don't remember which Olympics it was, but I, I do vaguely remember some sort of Olympics where the yeah, ha- where the I know what Canada you're talking playing, about. Yeah, Canada was playing La- Team Latvia, and I think they almost lost uh, because of a Latvian goalie uh, stealing the game then too. And so, uh, yeah, just a funny little thing. Uh, and Latvia noted goalie producer, I guess. That Latvian goalie was named Kristjans Gudlevskis, and he was a. Tampa Bay Lightning draft pick at the t- I think he was about 20 years old and he almost stole the game for uh for Team Latvia. But also uh you might remember I don't think it could be only goalies because remember a couple of years ago at the All-Star game when the entire country of Latvia voted Zemgus Gergensen into the All-Star game which was kind of the uh the John Scott thing before John Scott was a thing and then he told uh he told um, his country next year, "All right, uh, one, one year was enough. You don't have to. You don't have to vote me in again." And there's also Teddy Bluger on the Penguins is from Latvia, so uh, yeah, they've got they've got a couple players. Oh, okay. I wasn't aware uh, that that they had a some Latvian representation. Uh, I, I I vaguely remember the Gergensen story, uh, and I had no idea Teddy Bluger was Latvian. And so uh, yep. okay, under uh, uh, good for Latvia. Uh, a nice little uh, country that we can cheer for the underdog story, uh, and uh, yeah, good, good for good for Elvis because he's just been an absolute rock star. Uh, and I think so. Can we move on to the uh, our standing segment of the week? Yeah, sure. I've uh, I've already got them pulled up, but uh, I must say there has been very little change from last week. Uh, I don't remember if the Blue Jackets were in a in a divisional spot last week, they are now one point up on the Islanders, who have slipped into a wild card spot. Though they do still have three games in hand on the Blue Jackets, they are one point behind. Yeah, uh, and so as you mentioned, there there hasn't been any teams that have gone on uh, any any particular like uh, hot stretch or, or cold stretch in the week that in our in the week since our last episode. But uh, yeah, I mean, Elvis has now carried them into a division spot. Uh, looking at the wild card spots, we talked about Carolina not being in a wild card spot. Uh, they're back uh, at the expense of the Philadelphia Flyers, and so yeah, the, the, that that race is constantly shifting, and it's those three metro teams, those really those four metro teams: Blue Jackets, Islanders, Hurricanes, Flyers, uh, 
uh, you could throw in the Panthers in there too from the Atlantic, uh, who will be fighting it out for those, uh, you know, that last Metro spot uh, and those, those those two wildcard spots. Yeah, you throw in, throw the Maple Leafs also into that uh, into that mix because uh, they're they're a little higher up on the page. They're third in the Atlantic, but they're just a point ahead of the Panthers and have played two more games. So they are certainly not in the clear by any stretch. So that's, I guess you could say, six teams uh, fighting out for three spots at this time. And hopefully the, the Canadians can join them if they keep up that a little hot stretch. Yeah, 750, 750. Uh, and so looking elsewhere, uh, maybe we look at the top of the Atlantic real quick. Both of those teams have been extremely hot. Uh, five in a row. We've talked about Tampa Bay. Uh, they've been they just look like world beaters at this point. I think Vasilevsky is like something like sixteen and one in his last. I don't know how many starts. Uh, he since the, in the new year. He, I think he's had one loss uh, since uh, January first, twenty twenty. And so wow. uh, new decade, new Vasi, and uh, he's just been lights out for that team. And that team has been lights out. And so there's that. Uh, so they're five points apart at this point in the season uh, and the Lightning have a game in hand. Uh, and so... That's how you, yeah, that's how you know that's it. That's how you know a team is very good is when they when their starting goalie only loses one game in a month and no one ever talks about like, oh yeah, yeah, that's normal. That's the Lightning. That's what they do. They're, they're gonna, they're gonna win almost every game that they play. And personally, uh, if I had to pick now, that's probably my Stanley Cup pick. I don't remember if I've said that on the show recently or in the past couple of weeks, but they have just been the best team in the league uh, since January, and that's usually the the benchmark is how well you play since about the start of January. Uh, oftentimes, the team that wins the Stanley Cup was near the top of the league for the past three three and a half months of the season. Yeah, and I and I saw an interesting quote come out from John Cooper. Uh, relating to how they blew it last year against Columbus. And he was saying, you know, we were, we were playing arrogant. Uh, instead of just winning 3 nothing, we were trying to win 6 nothing. And, uh, and he said that, that maybe that, that came back to bite them. Uh, I think that's an interesting mm. perspective. I'm not sure if that's entirely correct because I think winning 6 nothing is better than winning 3 nothing. Uh, but <laughs> maybe, maybe he's onto something. Who knows? Uh, but yeah, I, I guess the, 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 the mental part of it, we talked about that uh, when they were struggling, you know, something's not right between the years with this team because they got, you know, swept by the Blue Jackets last year. Uh, they seem to have figured it out. And uh, yeah, nobody's been able to stop them. Yeah. Uh, all right. Before we move on to the, the Western Conference, of course, we got to check in with our favorite last place team, the Detroit Red Wings, who actually won a game this week. They defeated the Buffalo Sabres. I think it was 4-3 in the shootout, possibly 5. Anyway, they beat Buffalo in the shootout, that much I remember. So they are now on pace for 44 points, uh, which would clear them, of course, of the 40-point the watch. Uh, right now they sit at 30 points with a 13-39-4 record in 56 games. Uh, Jimmy Howard also, by the way, is, I think, 2-20-2, which has started making the rounds this week. People noticed Jimmy Howard's pretty terrible record. So, uh, yeah, from now until the end of the season, if the, the Red Wings win at least five games, then they will have uh, the cleared the benchmark that we set for them back on uh, near the end of December. Yeah. Yeah, that 40-point watch. Now, yeah, that, that Jimmy Howard record is, is really something. Are you kidding me? Two and 20. Uh, that's preposterous. And uh, shame on the Sabres 
for giving them that point boost. Uh, a little, a little <laughs> I want to, you know, shine that the light on this absolute train wreck of an organization that is the Buffalo Sabers. Uh, a little funny thing that came out. I just want to mention it. You know, uh, it was a, there was, oh. it was I think it was Buffalo Radio, where uh, a certain angry caller by the name of Dwayne uh, called in and and expressed his frustration as a a season long Buffalo fan, uh, as a season ticket holder. Sorry. Uh, and a lifelong Buffalo Sabres fan. And so, uh, yeah, we, we see the fans really, really revolting after we talked about the Sabres. They had a fantastic hot stretch uh, to begin the season, and they have just fallen off a cliff precipitously. Uh, they're three points behind the Habs at this point. Uh, and so, yeah, that, that fan base has definitely something uh, to, 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 you know, to be upset about because it just seemed that you know, everybody was like, okay, the Sabres aren't uh, sustainable, and they really weren't. And, uh, yeah, just a, an absolute train wreck of an organization. And uh, no solve seems to be in the, in the cards in, in the near future. Yeah, I, we could possibly dive into it at some point in a, in a show upcoming soon. But I don't even see how the Sabres could fix the problem here unless they kind of just, you know, do another big sell-off and try to rebuild around Eichel and Dalian again. But, I mean, fans have been – this will be, what, the, the 10th year? In a row, they missed the playoffs. Uh, I think that's the number, 9 or 10, which is uh, the longest stretch the NHL has seen in a while of, of you know, being terrible. And it's not just being, you know, just barely missing out. It's, lose, it's dramatic fashion, like two consecutive years of massive tanks. The, the ones where they ended up with Reinhardt, and then the next one, obviously, with uh, the McDavid tank, where they ended up with Jack Eichel. And now it's two years in a row where they start off great, last year the 10-game winning streak, of course, and then it's total and, and utter misery. And I feel like this uh, this Dwayne call in that you, you mentioned definitely definitely made the rounds. The, the Pagulas, the owners of the Sabres, heard about it, we know, because they asked the radio station to actually take it down, which is not a good look for them. So I'm sure the general manager, the coaches, the players have all heard about it too. And it seems like um, it hasn't exactly lit a fire under their ass. And in fact, quite the opposite. They have been, uh, I haven't watched them, but from the sounds of it, even worse this week that, since, uh, than they were before. Yeah, that loss to Detroit, Detroit, Detroit really caps it <laughs> off. Uh, and yeah, just uh, not, no, it just seems we see this forever. This throughout my hockey life, it's just been the Sabres uh, have been garbage. And so that that, that continues to, to reign. And uh, yeah, just just not a well-run organization. Uh, yeah, it just seems every year there's a fresh narrative on how they've managed to be one of the worst narratives in the league. And that's definitely got to be frustrating for, for our fan base. I mean, if that's that's your team every year, that's definitely got to wear on you as a fan. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, hearts out oh, to yeah. Buffalo Can't fans. Can't even imagine. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we think we have a bad here in Montreal. We haven't had a deep run in a while. Yo, that Sabres team, it's just so much worse. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, okay. That Moving on from the East, I think we can move on to the West. Uh, yeah. I mean, not, not hu- too much change. Uh, if I'm looking at the Pacific real fast, I hadn't noticed that the, the, the Canucks, I mean, I didn't know they had built such a lead where they could afford to lose three games in a row and still have a two-point lead on their, on their nearest opponent. And so, yeah, that's that's something. Uh, yeah, anything else you want to you want to say about about this? Uh, any of the Western playoff race? Yeah, well, in the the Pacific, uh, none of those five teams have been very good as of late. 
Uh, the Coyotes have just won two of their last ten, and now the Flames, ever since that uh, that Battle of Alberta, they're now on a, a three-game losing streak, and teams like the the Predators, the Winnipeg Jets, even the Wild are uh, slowly gaining ground. They've all, uh, well, the Jets haven't been so good lately, but Nashville has been all right, six of their last ten wins, including two in a row. So, And they've got two games in hand on the Flames, only a point behind. So any day now, the Preds could be leapfrog- leapfrogging the uh, the Flames into a playoff spot. So Calgary, Arizona are, are both in danger. And that, uh, that wild card race could be turning itself around. Could look very different at this time next week. Yeah, I mean, it just seems that this whole conference is playing like crap. I don't understand. All the playoff teams, they're, they're terrible recently anyways. I mean, the Blues have been mediocre. I don't know why. The Avalanche, it just seems the last month or so, they haven't been able to get it going since they lost out on Taylor Hall. Uh, the Stars have been relatively mediocre. Uh, I mentioned the Canucks losing three in a row. Uh, Vegas, I don't buy into Vegas at all, especially with that suspect coaching change that they made uh and it just seems that this team has been middling all season the oilers is the oilers how can you possibly expect me to buy into that team when they're literally just two players and a bunch of scrubs uh behind them uh the coyotes uh falling off a cliff they have two wins in the last 10 and they're the first wildcard team right now and that's certainly not a good team right now uh the flames uh you know we've seen narratives coming out of the flames recently how they need to pick it up they're really struggling and they're in danger of losing the playoff spot and we talked about the predators how they've been hot garbage all season uh, and and they're now the 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 you know the the leading candidate to pass uh, the Flames and the Coyotes make a playoff spot and, and with that kind of season that the Predators have had to make the playoffs that would be pretty egregious. That's a really weak team given how they've played this season. Although they might have turned it around. Uh, the Jets we've talked about them three wins in their last ten. Uh, it's just I mean it's it, and that defense has been awful. Uh, we talked about Buffalo obviously they've lost them now uh, confirmed for the rest of the season and so. Just not a great team. Vesna caliber goal, they're still not in the playoffs. The Wild are the Wild. I don't know what else I have to say. Uh, yeah. Horseshit franchise. Uh, and then the, the Blackhawks, I mean, we, thought, you, we talked last week about how they've been, you know, uh, under the radar good. You said you called it this year for their playoff run, but they've lost two in a row. And I certainly don't buy that decor with Brent Seabrook and Duncan Keith uh, as, their, as their workhorses. Uh, and, and then so it comes Seab- to the Seabrook uh, is and- out. Okay, right. Oh, right. He, he yeah, had that see, big surgery. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Sorry, my bad. I forgot about that. Uh, yeah, But yeah. then, you know, I trust that. then I now I trust that defense even less. Uh, and now San Jose. Uh, what more do I need to say about San Jose? Uh, all California. They've teams. been crap. I, and all the well, that's it actually. Interesting remark. They're all three California teams ran out the West. Uh, just crappy teams. And so yeah, I just made my way through the West. And I do not feel any sort of optimism about any of them, given the way that they've been playing recently. Yeah, uh, but th- I sent a few weeks ago something to you that I noticed. It's not true anymore, but the Flyers, who at the time were sitting 10th in the East, had, I think, the exact same record, or m- at least the same point total, as the Dallas Stars, who at that time were sitting 4th in the West. So I'm just looking through now to see... Uh, See what it's like now. The Panthers are 10th in the East with 64 points. And 64 points would place them 5th place in the Western Conference. So uh, this kind of this imbalance, which I don't remember if it had really been an issue in the past. I feel like this year it's very, very egregious. Possibly last year as well. I don't really remember. So maybe we should be considering at some point in the future to work on like maybe abolishing the very strict conference playoff format and possibly doing some sort of 
1 through 16 seeding for the playoffs, to be more fair, because right now in the West, it looks like possibly St. Louis and Colorado are the only teams that I could really see going on a deep run. Possibly, I mean, well, obviously, someone else will, because, uh, you know, from the other, other division. But, like, in terms of possibly competing for a Stanley Cup, St. Louis and Colorado are the only ones that I really have faith in. Maybe if Vegas gets hot, but uh, certainly nobody else. Whereas in the East, there are plenty of contenders. Boston, Tampa, Washington, Pittsburgh, uh, obviously the big ones. Possibly if the, the Leafs get hot, they could they could make some noise. So so we'll see what, what goes on there. Yeah, uh, and, and just this whole standings and bounds. Uh, you, you would just look back at last, last year and turn our focus back to the Habs. Now, the Habs got jobbed out of a playoff spot when it comes to points yes. last season, if you remember, because they would have made the playoffs quite easily in the West with that point total. And so, yeah, this imbalance, it was there last year where the West is significantly, uh, significantly, you need less points to make the playoffs. And if we look at the standings now and we just go, you know, a little Habs-centric for a second, if the Habs were to be in the Western Conference, they would currently be sitting one point out of the, the first wildcard spot, two points out of the second wildcard spot. And so, and I, I believe, let me just check the game totals. They would, okay, so yeah, they, they played the same amount of games. And so it's just, yeah, the, the imbalance is there. And even for a team like the Habs, who, you know, nobody thinks they're a playoff team, honestly, let's like in terms of not media narrative, nobody thinks they're a playoff team. But if they were in the Western Conference, they would be in the thick. They would be the ninth place team. Uh, in that conference. And so, you know, we're talking about teams that are getting boned by this system. Uh, I think probably my, the Montreal Canadiens, uh, probably the first thing that comes to mind, given that they've been affected two years in a row at this point. Yeah, well, uh, I think even more than the Canadians would be whichever two teams in the East finish just outside the wildcard spot. Right now it's the Flyers and the Panthers. And we can see if all these teams keep up their paces, they would make the playoffs quite easily in the Western Conference. And it's looking to be very hard for uh, for those two teams right now. And whoever ends up missing, uh, just barely missing out in the East, even more so than Montreal, I would say. But but last year, you're right. I think yeah. the Avalanche made the playoffs with 90 points last year, and Montreal missed with 96 in the East. So that's a, just a, a massive point gap and, a, and a, a glaring flaw in the system. Yeah, and you mentioned the teams this year. I mean, if you have the Flyers in the Western Conference, not only are they in the playoffs, if you put them in the Pacific Division, they're winning the division right now. Uh, and so, really? you know, that, that, that's just, yes, because they're at 65, wow. Vancouver's at 65 as well. And so you, we're talking about a huge disparity here. And, and not only that, the Flyers also have a game in hand on the Canucks where they'd be in that division. And so it's just the disparity is insane at this point. And uh, I, I honestly don't see a, a reconsideration of the, you know, the balance is just, you know, travel wise, uh, probably not ideal, but, you know, maybe definitely something to look at uh, given, you know, teams like the Flyers, they should be in the playoffs if you're looking at points, point percentage, whatnot. And so, yeah, just uh, quite an egregious system. Uh, we talked about the point system in the past, how that's a piece of crap. Well, uh, this, this standing thing is not so great either. Yeah. Uh, all right. So I, I certainly did not see that conversation going in that sort of restructural direction. I don't know if you have anything else to, to point out, or perhaps we can wrap it up for this week. Uh, no, I, I'm, I think I'm, I've said my piece, uh, and uh, I, think that, that I think we're good for this episode. And so, uh, yeah. yeah, that wraps it up for this week. Uh, so wh- how many games do the Habs uh, have this week? Well, actually, uh, assuming we'll be recording again next Sunday, 
the 16th, then we will have five games between now and next episode. We've got the Leafs tonight, the Coyotes on Monday, Boston on Wednesday, Pittsburgh on Friday, and Dallas next Saturday. So quite the heavy load between uh, between now and next Sunday. Also, we'll be at the uh, the Montreal Canadian Skills Competition tomorrow morning, which I mentioned. So possibly we could talk about what our experience will be like there. So expect a, a loaded show next time. Yeah, can't wait. And uh, as you mentioned, it's a it's a heavy load for the Habs. We're playing against four playoff teams and the Maple Leafs, who are up there. Uh, actually, five playoff teams. Never mind, I forgot they were in a playoff spot. So five playoff teams. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah, we're talking about. I talked about earlier testament to the season. You know how this little next little stretch will define how the Habs will be. Definitely, this is a test against playoff teams. This week will be huge. And uh, if make they come break. out of it winning, I think uh, it, it'll certainly give a, a much more exactly make or break week right now. And so, uh, yeah, definitely excited to be coming at you next week with a new episode. Uh, subscribe on Google Play, iTunes, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, thanks for listening. Tell your friends about this podcast. You know, uh, Thank you very much. This episode of Fusion and Hockey Podcast is sponsored by Sanborn's Boys. This new sports novel by Benji Mellers is available on Amazon. Order your copy of Sanborn's Boys today.